On behalf of Weinberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and we're here to talk about the Section 199 Cap A regulations. By now, many of you are aware that the Section 199 Cap A proposed reliance regulations have been issued by the U.S. Treasury. The statutory authority for the regulations is found right in Section 199 Cap A in a number of different places. In the statute itself, they talk about general regulations to carry out the purposes of 199A, acquisitions, dispositions in short years, guaranteed payments, the allocation of wages and property, restricting the allocation of items and wages and reporting requirements, the application to tiered entities, preventing the manipulation of depreciable assets and using transactions between related parties, and determining the UBIA of qualified property acquired in like-kind exchanges or in voluntary conversions. There are a number of operational rules in the first part of the regulations. Included in these operational rules are a number of new terms which you all have to become familiar with. Some of the more important terms are reduction amount, which is the amount of tax attributes for 199 when they are reduced by the phase-in requirements of the specified service business. Relevant pass-through entity, which is a new term, which describes a pass-through or S-corporation or an estate or trust to the extent it passes through QBI, W-2 wages, UBIA of qualified property, qualified REIT dividends, or qualified PTP income. Specified service trade or business, SSTB, is defined in great detail under the regulations. Another new term is unadjusted basis immediately after acquisition of qualified property. That's explained in great detail, and I'll go through that in today's presentation. So the 199A-1 C provides some basic computational rules, which we're all going to have to learn, mostly about carry forwards when we have losses. We'll also talk about the small business exclusion, the SSTB, if taxable income is within the phase-in range, only the applicable percentage of UBI, W-2 wages, and UBIA of qualified property for each specified service trade or business is taken into account. So we're going to have to learn along the way here the, the phase-ins or phase-outs, depending where you fall, what type of business you are, if your income's in the phase-out range. The new regulations do allow for the aggregation of trades or businesses, and I'll talk a little bit about that today. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on all the carryover rules, although the regulations are quite well drafted. I think it's, it's really a class in and of itself to understand these rules. Interestingly enough, income from the territory of Puerto Rico will also be included in 199 Cap A. 199 Cap A is neutral for AMT purposes but not deductible for self-employment taxes, nor for purposes of computing the net investment income tax. We do need to talk about a term, though, that's been evolving, and that is the term of unadjusted basis immediately before acquisition. What we're talking about here is what did you pay for the property, and the regulations go out of their way to specify that if you make a 168G election for bonus depreciation, or a 179 election, that is not going to affect your UBIA 
for purposes of Section 199, Cap A. Furthermore, and much to my surprise, the regulations do specify that if you make a 754 election, that you do not get additional basis out of that for purposes of 199 Cap A. So I own an apartment building, 99% of it, the other 1% is owned by my family. I die, that 99%, the outside basis gets an increase in basis, but the inside basis does not receive a step up. It doesn't receive a step up. It's gonna be very interesting, the strategies that evolve around this. Will we be liquidating partnerships or LLCs in order to achieve this? And that's gonna be a matter of how do you match up depreciation recapture against the capital loss that would be caused upon a liquidation? So again, special partnership basis adjustments under section 743B and 754 are not treated as separate qualified property. Under the regs, depreciable period is the period from when you buy the property to the end of the life of the property or the 10-year period. And remember, bonus depreciation and 179 does not impact that. That's a good thing. We had run many present values when you do cost segs. It's good to know that we're not going to have to worry about that on a going forward. So the specific term UBIA stands for unadjusted basis immediately after acquisition. When you have basically property you've done a 1031 exchange for, um, the service is going to use existing principles that have been out there for years to determine the basis of the original property and the basis of the new property and when you start counting the depreciable period. Now, all this will be very difficult when you actually get into it. I think the important part right now is to have these triage points in your mind. Now, one of the more important parts of all of this are the aggregation rules under the Dash 4 regulations. So the Treasury basically rejected comments suggesting that taxpayers should be permitted to aggregate trades or businesses under Section 199 Cap A using the grouping rules in IRC Section 469. One reason that this was rejected is because the passive activity grouping rules apply to activities rather than to trades or businesses. Instead, what the Treasury did, it created a very laborious uh, six-pronged test under a proposed reg section 1.199-CAP-A-4, uh, along with operating rules and disclosure and consistency requirements. The service is also looking for comments on aggregation or grouping type elections. So these six rules, each trader business is itself a trader business. The same person or groups of persons owns directly or indirectly 50% or more of each trader business. For a trader business owned by an S corporation, 50% or more of the issued and outstanding shares is what you look to, and for a partnership or LLC, 50% or more of the capital or profits in the partnership. Such ownership must be held for the majority of the taxable year in which the items attributable to each trader business are includable in income. Four, all items attributable to each trader business are to be reported on returns with the same taxable year, not taking into account short taxable years. None of the trades or businesses is a specified service trader business, and the trades or businesses satisfy 
at least two of the following factors. The trades or businesses provide products and services that are the same or customarily offered together. A restaurant and a food truck, a gas station and a car wash. That's what the regulations cite. The trades or businesses share facilities or share significant centralized business elements such as personnel, accounting, legal, manufacturing, purchasing, human resources, or information technology, and the businesses are operated in coordination with or reliance on other businesses in the aggregated group. Now, I think what we're going to find, if you will, if you are aggregating two businesses that are depending on the wage limitation, that will have a smoothing effect and it shouldn't hurt you. If you're aggregating two businesses that are going to be using the capital test, again, it, the aggregation will have a smoothing effect and won't hurt you. Where you're going to get into trouble is where you aggregate a business that relies on the wage test along with a business that relies on the capital test. So you might be better not to aggregate those. There's going to be a number of operating rules under these businesses, and we're going to have to also become very good at attribution under these businesses. Under the attribution rules under the regs, the 50% ownership requirement is going to be tested with family attribution being taken into account. And that's attribution by from your spouse or from your children, grandchildren, and your parents. There will be very in-depth reporting and consistency requirements. And if you fail to make these disclosures, you will not be able to group. So it's very important that we learn to make these disclosures and make them properly. Now, if you have if you, now let's transition into specified service businesses. If you have a service business, the service business itself is required to report that. So the service business itself is required to report that. There are going to be some de minimis rules under the regulations. If your sales are under $25 million, gross receipts is actually the term. And basically you have less than 10% of your receipts from a specified service trade or business then you're not going to have to treat the entire business as a specified service trade or business. If the business has gross receipts greater than $25 million, uh, then you get into a 5% gross receipt test. Now, a specified service business is defined within the statute and by past interpretations of similar language in the code and legislative intent. They did deal with skill and reputation by narrowing that quite a bit from where we originally thought we would be. Then, to my surprise, they went through each of the specified service businesses, law, accounting, health, actuarial science, performing arts, and they did a very nice job of delineating all the different parts of this. Okay, so, so lots of detail. Interesting, financial planners are in a specified service trader business, insurance salespeople are not. Again, reputation and skill is narrowed. It's mostly people like your sports celebrities is what it seems to be getting endorsement money now, um, receiving income for endorsing products or services, licensing and receiving income for the use of the individual's image, likeness, name, signature, voice, trademark, receiving appearance fees or income. And finally, reputation and skill has been narrowed quite a bit. Financial planners and investment advisors are all going to be caught in the net 
of a specified service business. The service went out of their way under the Dash 5 regulations to eliminate what was typically called the crack and pack strategy. In the crack and pack strategy, um, what's actually happening here is basically if you had a dentist, he or she would spin out their receptionist and spin out the billing people and put them in an administrative entity and try to take 199 Cap A with respect to that entity. So we can certainly learn a lot by, by looking at this and going through all the delineation the service put together. The service also in the Dash 6 regs does address trusts in the states. Unfortunately, they didn't put enough examples in there that it makes it totally clear, and they do ask for help with how to apply 199 to um, charitable ranger trusts. They did, however, provide us with more detail under 1-643 parens F-1, a set of proposed regulations for anti-avoidance rules for multiple trusts. They did not give enough examples. Um, our friend Steve Oceans was quoted as saying he wished they had given us 10 or 15 examples and just delineated it. Instead, they only gave us a handful of examples. Remember, two or more trusts will be aggregated and treated as a single trust if the trusts have substantially the same grantors and primary beneficiaries, and a principal purpose of creating the trust or contributing additional cash to them is the avoidance of federal income tax. So we have covered a lot of ground today. Hopefully I've provided you some very quick insight into Section 199 Cap A. On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler discussing Section 199 Cap A. Thank you for joining us today.